0: This is episode number 91 of Patrick Jones Baseball. I recently just got back from Springfield, Missouri. I was at Slugfest, which is a hitting coach's clinic over the weekend. Um, Had a great, great time. Um, Really appreciate the people who came up to me and and mentioned uh, the podcast and how much they enjoyed it. That that really meant a lot to me, so I really appreciate that. Um, On today's episode, we have Dana Cavalea. Dana is the former strength and conditioning coach for the New York Yankees and is currently a performance coach to pro athletes, CEOs, corporations, and future leaders. He recently just came out with a book called Habits of a Champion, and I really liked uh, the interview I did with Dana for a few reasons. We get into some strength and conditioning stuff and what he likes to do for baseball players. Um, but we also talk a little bit about um, kind of what separated some of the guys he's worked with um, in the past, as Derek Jeter, Alex Rodriguez, Mark Teixeira. Um, He was able to see all those guys um, day in and day out, and he talks a little bit about kind of what made them so unique and special. So, fun interview with Dana. Really appreciate him coming on. I think you guys will enjoy listening to him as well. And um, without further ado, please give it up for Dana Cavalea. All right, and we are now live with Dana Cavalea, who is the former strength and conditioning coach for the New York Yankees, and is currently a performance coach to CEOs, pro athletes, corporations. Dana, I really appreciate you coming on today.
1: You got it. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.
0: So, uh, can you give the listeners a little bit of your background, kind of um, in your industry, and how you got started doing all this?
1: Yeah. So I, I mean, I started as a, as a, uh, an underperforming player myself. I, uh, you know, had aspirations of to get into the big leagues and being a player. I played on all the travel ball teams, the showcase teams. And, you know, I got to a point when I got to the college level that I realized I was a bit outmatched. Um, you know, I fell in love with the training aspect after an injury in high school and um, realized the, the power of training and how I can rehabilitate myself and I can train myself to improve my skill set. And that's what I did. I went as far as I could. In the game, you know, with the skills I had and the the training on top, uh, I realized, though, that I was training wrong. And as a result of of incorrect training, I didn't maximize um, my performance the best I could. So, I, um, you know, I got involved with the field of strength and conditioning and performance years ago before it was, uh, you know, anything what it is now. And um, really, I, I started as an intern, you know, with the team. I worked hard, worked for free for three years. And um, at 23, I became the uh, the head strength and conditioning coach and director of performance for the Yankees, and uh, started my career at the ripe old age of 19 as an intern. So
0: you were 23 my, when you were the the head the strength coach for the Yankees.
1: Yeah, 23 years old. I, I took that position. Um, I want to say today it's probably the youngest um, in in professional sports to hold that that director based position, and it was uh, basically my job to you know, oversee all the performance aspects of the entire organization, speed, strength, power, uh, players that needed to be rehabilitated. I took care of their rehab routines uh, alongside our trainers and uh, wrapped around all that with the uh, the mental side, you know, making sure that our guys were mentally strong and fit to, to play the game and to get through the training and get through the rehab process when needed. So it was, uh, it was a lot of work, man. It was a lot of work, but it was, it was great. And I got incredible insight. And, and my lab, you know, think about the, the players that I got to work with, you know, Jeter, A-Rod, Posada, uh, Mariano, those were the players that I, you know, initially I learned on, you know, so you got to see what was real and what was not real <laughs> in terms of, you know, what works and what doesn't work. And um, it, it was pretty amazing stuff.
0: Now, with those type of players or just a lot of big players in general, don't they a lot of times have like a personal trainer? So did you have to talk to their personal trainer to make sure you guys were on the same page?
1: Well, you know what? Back then a couple guys did and then actually, you know, over the course of, of my tenure and relationship with them, I ended up training a lot of these guys personally. You know, I, I built my schedule in the weight room where I was with each of each of the horses in a one on one um you know, environment. So a lot of guys, believe it or not, they let their, they let their trainers go and, uh, it, it worked out really well. And and for me, I've always been a big uh, advocate. I was, I'm a teacher in my field, you know, uh, strength, conditioning and performance. So I, I was always able to relate to them what I was doing and what their plan should look like based on their individual needs. And because of that, you know, you gain trust, and, and the players knew that you had their best intention. I wasn't being paid by them, so I wasn't giving them a biased opinion either. So that worked out, out nicely.
0: Who was the hardest worker um, out of all those guys in the Yankees?
1: Yeah, they all they all worked at, um, at different paces. I mean, just when you look at, at a player, you look at a guy like Andy Pettit, and you say, wow, he puts in the work, he puts in the time. And and Andy was a guy that correlated his training with on-field success. There was direct correlation to training and on-field success. And, you know, I think part of what, what motivated Andy so much was, was fear. And he was uh, nervous that he would not be prepared to pitch every five days. So for him, it was like, I got to train, so I'm ready to pitch. And I know he got that from Roger. And, um, you know, working with the two of those guys together was, was, was great. But Andy was a, was a hard worker. A-Rod was a super hard worker. And a guy like Mariano Rivera, who's unassuming in, a, in terms of his stature, was a really hard worker in terms of his flexibility, his tissue work. You know, every day, you know, every game, fifth inning, he's with me for a good hour. You know, we're taking care of his massage. We're taking care of his soft tissue needs, making sure his flexibility and range of motion, mobility are all strong. And as a result, uh, you know, He was a hard worker in his own right.
0: Was Jeter, um, someone who just, I've heard he just kind of was one of those guys who just like wanted to maintain his strength more than anything.
1: Uh, no, that's, that's, you know, early in his career, he, he was so talented that he didn't need, uh, I don't want to say he didn't need it, but he, he really didn't need it. He didn't need the level of training that other players and other bodies needed because his talent profile was so high. But, um, later in his career, like I'd say, probably the last seven or eight years, I mean, he worked his butt off. He worked really hard. And, you know, Monday, Wednesday and Friday, like clockwork, Three thirty, Derek was there. I was there. We worked. And if he was even running a minute late, there was a phone call and there was a text, Hey, running late, but here's the audible. We're going to work out, you know, right after BP and, and, and right before the game. So, um, definitely a, a consistent worker and a hard worker. And, um, you know, but I'm very focused worker. Only doing these guys only do the things that they need to do. Um, you know, there wasn't too much guessing. There wasn't too much, uh, you know, looking for the hottest new exercises and the coolest things and, and the newest trends, fads, and hacks. They were just what, is, what does my body need? That's what I'm giving it. And, and that's, that's what we're doing.
0: Yeah, how do you kind of, because there's so much information out there from a training perspective, so how do you kind of differentiate, like, what if the, if a new trend is, like, somewhere or something that you kind of want to explore for your own players versus, yeah. uh, you know, kind of shying away from that?
1: Yeah, no, it's a good question. You know, there's a lot of crap out there, I got to tell you. You know, you got to understand, too, when I was starting this whole thing, there was no Instagram, there was no Facebook, there was no Twitter. And again, not that I'm old. I'm I'm thirty I'm thirty six years old. So it was just that stuff was kind of coming out um, during the later years of my career. So we weren't as influenced by um, influencers and, and and trends in that way. Uh, the other thing is this: you know, when you play for money, it's a completely different game. So when whenever I would see something, number one, it would have to be validated by. My own work, you know, in terms of it has to make sense to me. I have to do it and apply it to myself and to my my other coaches. And if it was something that we saw value in, that would be uh, that would be something that we would adopt into the system. But in addition to training professional athletes, you know, I had uh, five training facilities in the New York metro area where we trained a lot of high school and a lot of college players. So I would test a lot of my stuff inside of my own dwellings. And that was really helpful because, again, not that we were going to do anything to hurt a young player, but we had a little bit more wiggle room because those bodies had a lot less mileage on it than, let's say, a, a professional athlete that's been playing for 10, 15 years. So I sort through things very quickly. Everything for me is based on foundational, fundamental principles. I don't care how sexy it looks. I learned something long ago from Larry Boa, and he told me, that said, Dana, you see Robinson Cano play second base, how he flips the ball behind his back and he makes all those errors and he makes those mistakes on the field. He said that's his problem is he can't keep it vanilla. He wants to put all different flavors in the bowl. He wants to put sprinkles and hot fudge. And I learned early in my career, if I could keep it vanilla and focus on the fundamentals, we would have really good results. And my guys became great movers um, and really good at executing fundamental movement. Um, and they weren't looking for the flash. My job as a coach was to make it fun. I didn't use exercises to make it fun.
0: Yeah, no, that that, that makes I I completely understand that. And I do kind of like how you're always you're like you were talking about. You're testing on some of the younger players as well that are coming up, which are easier. It's going to be a lot easier to do now from a performance um, standpoint. You kind of talked a little bit about the mental game earlier. Um, are the those guys? I mean, are, are they are they struggling with confidence just as much as? you know, high school kids are?
1: Yeah, you know, um, I think it's a great myth that, you know, because you're a pro, you have all this confidence. I would say that that the the typical professional athlete profile in terms of confidence is probably a lot higher than the general population and just, you know, the, the people that we roam the earth with on a day-to-day basis. But when you put these high performers all in the same room, there's definitely gaps of confidence between a guy like Derek Jeter you know, and a player that may just be up for a cup of coffee. And, you know, that there's just Derek Keeter's day-to-day performance and preparation and, you know, how he was raised led to a lot of his high levels of confidence, which sometimes come across as arrogance and comes across as, you know, um, being cocky. But I, I believe that um, your players that last the longest, they're very convicted people and their confidence profile is, is higher than the rest. Um, they didn't need as many positive affirmations and you know a lot of positive coaching and all, that, all that, that stuff that we see in the general marketplace today that's being preached. Those, those high-profile players, they knew they were good. They went out and got it done every day, and that day-to-day success just added more and more on top of their confidence pile. Uh, it was the players that were always searching and trying to find the next best thing. They struggled today, and then they try to find a new routine tomorrow. Or they, they struggled today, and they're watching motivational videos of themselves to keep them up. That that player was one that we really had to watch because they didn't have the same level of in, you know, um, ingrained confidence. So that was something we had to work on.
0: Now... I'm sure you've heard this tr- t- true, or I don't know if it's a myth or not, but I've heard that, that A-Rod was someone who always really struggled with confidence issues. Is that Was that true?
1: Um, you know, the thing with Al is I wouldn't say it's confidence issues, and, and it could be pinned on him as such. But the thing with Alex is, number one, his talent level was, was way above the pack. So that gave him a little bit of wiggle room to, you know um, – if his confidence was at all not there, he could make up for it with his talent. But I think for a guy like Alex, um, I never talked to him and said, "Wow, this guy is really insecure." He's the, you know he he was the same guy every single day. I think that that people were looking for more out of him in terms of you know depth and 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 trying to get something from him that he wasn't able to give. Um, and I think it was perceived as a lack of. Of confidence, um, but he was also a guess hitter, and when he guessed wrong, he looked silly, and and you know it's I think it was it would manifest itself in in him looking a little bit you know off, and um, you know I, I never really again he's one of my closest friends too, and, and I would uh, feel very comfortable saying yes or no to his to his to his lack of confidence, but um, I think he was his own entity in a lot of ways, Alex. You know, he spent a lot of time with young players developing them. But for the most part, you know, he came to the field to play every single day. And um I don't know. I think he, he's a guy that found a lot of confidence in his day to day routine and and he never varied from his routine.
0: Yeah, um, no, I've heard that I've heard that um a ton from people that he was one of those players who is just obsessed with getting better and working out and doing those things. It,
1: Yeah. And I think that that right there. And what you said, I think that is another reason why maybe people, um, again, had had questions of, of his confidence. It, it was his obsession. You know, he'd be the guy that goes home and watches another baseball game on a Saturday night, uh, after our game, while he's got his laptop open watching his own at-bats, like it was an obsessiveness about being great. And, you know, other players like a guy like Jeter. The last thing he wants to do is even think about. He won't even think about putting a baseball game on when he goes home. It's like movies and and dinner and and that's his life. But Al, it, it's baseball. I want to be great. That's it. That's all I care about. I want to be the greatest baseball player ever. Um, so his obsessiveness may have been a little bit um, confusing to people as as a lack of confidence. Well,
0: well, Jeter is is regarded as as one of the greatest leaders. Um in baseball pretty much ever, obviously, you nicknamed or the, name, the name the captain. Um, what do you think made him such a unique leader in that regard? Because you're a performance coach. You've obviously seen um, him and been around him for a really long time. Do you think that's more natural, or was that something that he kind of developed over time?
1: I think it's uh, something that, that he developed over time. I mean, I think he got better over time. Uh, you know when I first met Derek this was back in probably 2001 I said man I don't really I don't really care for this guy that much you know when I first met him I didn't get what all the hype was about I actually thought he was a little bit you know um, not my cup of tea Uh, but as I got to know him I realized the thing with Derek is he's an introvert and you wouldn't think being such a big name and such a big presence uh, that he would be so introverted so when you when you talk to him, you, you you say, ah, something off there. But the reality is he's a quiet guy. He's to himself. Um, and, and, again, he's, he could be misleading at times with that. But because of that, I think when you got him one-on-one and you really got to have a conversation with him, you got some really good takeaways. And he did a really good job of holding you accountable in in, in certain ways. So I, I, I just wrote a book, and I, I put an example in there. And we were in Detroit. It was the playoffs and I was getting dressed in the training room and Derek was on the table getting his ankle worked on. And he said something to me and I kind of like snapped at him a little bit and he goes, Hey, Hey, Whoa. And he pulled me aside later and he said, you're a little defensive there. He goes, you know, defensive is, you know, a demonstration of some insecurity. And at the time I was young, I didn't, I didn't even think much of it. I thought he was just crossing my chops, but, um, it turned out that, that that was a catalyst for a lot of conversation between me and him past that. And, and I think that's what great leadership is. And that's what made him really good is he was able to identify something, mention it, and then carry that develop carry that through um, in terms of further conversation. So he was never the kind of guy that was a rah-rah guy, a hype guy, a look-at-me guy. I mean, to date, he doesn't even have a social media account. Um, he was just the guy that, was again focused on the game keeping it simple and and helping everybody along their their journey um in a personal way rather than the guy that stands on and talks addresses the whole team i i don't think i've ever seen him address our team as a whole um in a meeting ever
0: really always one on
1: one yeah always one on one and i think that number one matched his style he didn't say I'm a leader, I'm the captain, so therefore I need to address the team the way a standard or typical leader and captain would. It was all about, I'm myself, I'm true to myself always, and this is how I go about it, you know, love me or hate me, love it or shove it, this is who I am and this is how I go about my business, and and I never wavered from that. And I, I always, when I speak to coaches, when I speak to young athletes and parents and families... That level of conviction and self belief is so powerful, and it goes against the grain. You're not going to be loved by all, and which he wasn't. Um, but but you're going to have some raving fans in terms of the people that you get a chance to touch. And and, and uh,
0: Yeah, you, know. you wrote a you wrote a book, Habits of a Champion. Um,
1: yeah. What kind of what what drove you to write this book? Oof. Well, you know, I've been on a book tour lately, so I've had a ch- I've, I've gotten that question a lot and I, I answer it very simply that you know, in I, I've spent my whole career in the field of coaching and before I was a coach, like I said, I was a, an underperforming player to my standards and I didn't achieve what I wanted in the game as a player. So, you know, obviously you're you're constantly trying to say, "Hey, you know, is there something out there that can make me better? Is there somebody out there?" And I I got To reading a lot of books, you know, in terms of, you know, whether it's psychology, you know, personal development, self-help, you know, all the training books, and that was the knowledge I had from from being, you know, having a degree in sports medicine. But I wrote this book because I saw such a disconnect between what I was being told as a young player, what I was reading in a lot of these books that I was reading, and what I actually saw in the best players that I had a chance to work with who are the best of the best, cream of the crop, and some of the best CEOs exec- and executives that I I now work with who happen to be team owners and such. So, so I saw this gap, and I said, I'm filling my mind with this. I'm being told this, yet I'm watching these outstanding players and professionals achieve incredible results, not be stressed out, you know, just daily execution strategies that were great. I said, I need to write about what's going on with these incredible players, and I'm going to write this book from a, a practical standpoint that people could read and say, you know what? I'm not as far away as this, you know, guru is making me think I am from, from optimal performance. I may be right there, but I'm questioning myself. So that, that kind of motivated me to write that book was, Hey, I got these great experiences that didn't match up with what I was being told as a young player and a young coach. I I need to close that gap for people. And I, I want to do it through my experiences and, and through stories and my own personal uh Experiences and liability uh, and vulnerabilities. So, is the disconnect
0: that essentially like you were just talking about? How you know you were growing up, you were you always thought you had to be a certain way. Is that kind of going back to the rah rah way versus like how Jeter's kind of more closed off and things like that?
1: It, it, I think it's a mix, you know. pat in that, um, you know, I'm sure you could relate to this. You know, I had coaches that said you need to be the first one to the field and the last one to leave. All right. So that I took that as a young player that I just need to hit all day long. I'm just going to hit, hit, hit. And the more I hit, the better I'll do. Well, there's a player, you know, I grew up in New York. So if it was snowing, I was out there with my teeth. If it was freezing, I was still out there hitting. Um, this was before the whole batting cage thing really exploded because that, you know what, there's a kid in the Dominican Republic right now that that's hitting and hitting and hitting, and he's getting better than I am. So then I saw there a cheater and I saw, uh, a host of other players, Mark Teixeira. These guys were the last ones there and the first ones to leave. (laughs) But, and and it was over and over and over again. It wasn't like one guy. It was every top-notch player from Ichiro Suzuki to Teixeira to Jeter, you name it, Posada. Last ones there, first ones to leave. And I said, this is crazy to me. And then I started to watch them. What do they do while they're here? They never sat down. They just when they got there they they hit the ground running, they had their own personal plan, their own personal agenda, and they ran it hard until game time, played the game, game was over, boom, hit the cold tank, showered up, gone off to so i, I said man this is this is mind blowing to me. What I was being told and how how the these pro guys, hall of famers are really going about their business that there there was a major gap, and there were you know um so anyway, that, that's kind of what I saw. And I said, this is, you know, I, I need to learn more from these guys in terms of their actions. And and just going one step back, you know, when it comes to a lot of these personal development books and a lot of these self-help guys and these thought leaders that are out there that are, um, you know, putting their thoughts forward, a lot of it is not practical. Like, I'm talking from real life experience. I'm not speaking about you know, case studies that were formulated in a in a, a classroom or a lab and I'm saying on field, real life people, from high people, you know, high status folks in the world of business all the way to people in the world of sport, this is the common thread and the common theme that I've seen with all of them. So Yeah, that's
0: that is it's it is such a, a weird dynamic, especially um, as you see coaches, and I, and I guess I can understand from a coach's perspective, they want their players to always be there. They want this or that. But I think you're, you're bringing up a unique point of where, well, I'm sure they do want that, but they also need to understand that the best of the best aren't doing that.
1: Right. right. and and the, But the best of the best, what they are doing is they're giving 100% effort and 100% attention in the time that they are there. And and I know one of the, the more influential coaches, um, you know, out there was coach John Wooden, you know, from UCLA, you know, ton of books, ton of leadership development tools that he created. And one of the things that he was really big on was a structured practice. Here's when we're starting, here's when we're ending, and everything will be accounted for in between. And when you hear that and then you match that up to these high performers, that's exactly what they're doing. They're not hanging around. They're not lounging around. They're they're here to work, execute the plan. You know, be coached, and then get out and go live your own life. You know, um, and and that that's that was powerful, powerful, powerful for me to see and uh, live firsthand for a lot of years.
0: So you're on a book tour right now. Are you currently doing any type of training at all with athletes, or are you strictly not doing that anymore?
1: Yeah, no, I am. I'm working with uh you know high school kids that are going to play in college. Um, I'm also working with pro guys as they come through the New York metro area. You know, I work with agents, so it it, it you know, it, it uh it always changes who's coming through and, and, and who we're working with. But, you know, as players come through the New York metro area, you know, I take care of them. I, I work primarily with the pro guys and then also um, high school athletes that are planning to go play in college. So I have some athletes, you know, around the country too that I develop plans and training plans for and coach them. And, uh, that's, that's what I do. So it's, uh, I get a really nice mix of these pro players that I, I still learn a tremendous amount from, but I also use my experiences in, in working with the youth to, to help the pro guys in terms of, you know, building their foundation even stronger. Because a lot of these guys, too, talent is a blessing and a curse. And some of these guys are so talented that they're able to overlook some of the foundational issues that they have, and that translates into injury later on. So um, sometimes, although the the painting looks like it's a perfect painting in a big league uniform, uh, there are some foundational cracks that we have to go back and correct to make sure that we're putting a really strong uh, personal insurance policy on that body. So, when you're you know, working with I, I high work school,
0: with, high school and pro hitters or pro players, right now, I should say, what's the difference yeah. um, when you're training some of these guys? Like, what, like, do you? Is there a certain process that um, that you need to kind of go through, like a screening process, and then kind of get into, you know, all different sorts of movements and things like that?
1: Yeah. Well, the first thing I do anytime I work on anybody. Is I do a full assessment and evaluation on on you know everything. I measure all the joint angles in their body. I, I actually get hard metrics on that. I manual muscle test them to see where they're actually a specific muscle weakness, um, and then I come. I, I take them through different movement profiles to see actually how they're moving, and I take all that information, and I cross compare that to um, you know their injury history and their pain history. So once I have all those data points, from there I can create a specific plan for that particular person and for that particular individual. So whether you're a, an amateur player or a pro player, the process is exactly the same um, because I need to do my own research and and, and uh, gain as much intelligence as I can to see where you're at and what you need. And then from there, I develop a specific plan, usually based on many different phases. So my first phase Again, whether you're a pro or whether you're uh, an amateur, I have to develop stability in your body. I need to make sure you're posturally aligned, and I need to correct any sort of the deficit of mobility that exists and range of motion. And, And I think that is something that people are confused on. They think flexibility and range of motion are the same as mobility. So if a joint is restricted and you don't have the motion in the joint, I need to know how restricted are you and put a number to it. And then I need to, to make sure that the, the structure, the, the muscle that's surrounding that joint isn't anchoring down on that, on that joint to add to the, you know limitation in terms of flexibility um, or rather joint mobility. So there's this, there's this whole system that I go through. It's based on analysis and really understanding what that person needs because so many times we say, hey, and, and here's an example. I was in the batting, uh, we were in Oakland years ago. And uh, Kevin Long and I were sitting behind the cage watching Melky Cabrera swing. Melky's strong as an ox, you know, uh, built like a horse. And he wasn't getting his backside through when he was hitting from, uh, as, a, as a left-hander, when he was hitting from the left side of the plate. So he was getting his backside through when he was hitting righty, not lefty. So I said, Mel, come on in, let me measure you out. And he had a 15-degree joint differential between his left hip and his, right, and his right hip. So Kevin was trying to coach him to get his backside through, but he, he had a, a structural limitation that he, we needed to correct so he can get that backside through. Uh-huh. So just as an example, how, you know, when you approach the field of performance with this level of focus, you know, we work together with the hitting coaches, and, you know, uh, I feel really good because I discovered that issue. And Kevin feels really good because his player is now a rock star. And, you know, he's getting, he's getting the backside through. And that swing flaw was corrected, and, and it's correctable. So it's, it's, you know, working together from that way. And, and what I've learned that even more so, um, and I know I'm on a rant, is that in baseball, the last thing we need to be concerned about is size, getting a player bigger. Um, and I think that's something that at the youth ranks is so pushed, you got to get bigger, you got to get bigger and you got to get stronger. And the reality is you need to get powerful. You need to speed up your ability to contract your, your own musculature. And if you're adding bulk, you will actually slow that down, which means in turn, you'll actually compromise your overall power. So I I just spoke at a coaching conference last week, and that was a big part of what I talked about, not about size. And it's not about putting bulk on these players. It's about power. How can we increase total power while maintaining our stability? You know, through the core, through the lumbar spine, and through the lower lower extremity. So
0: going back going back to Melky, um, that example right there. So what would you do in that situation? You said his, his backside's not getting through. Kevin Long is trying to, you know, harp on it over and over again. Get your backside through. You take him in, test him out. You see he has a deficiency. So what would you do next?
1: Yeah, so, so for him, I put him on a manual um, joint mobility program where I would actually, you know, open up his hips and and improve that range of motion of his hips. First, it's any tissue he has, any muscular tissue he has surrounding that hip, we relax that, we use heat, we use different type of foam rollers, other tools, our hands to get that to relax. Then we open up the joint, and then once we open up the joint, now we strengthen in that new range of motion. That's when we would introduce... Um, because, again, he's used to sticking. So now we may do med ball-type throws. We may do rotary cable-type pulls, but the emphasis is not so much on how hard we can throw the ball through the wall. It's, hey, I want you to generate power through the ground because we generate power through the ground and then rotate that backside fully. I need to get him comfortable now because he's been so restricted for so long. I need to now get him comfortable working fully through that range of motion on that on that backside. So my cue is get the backside through, push through the ground, backside through, backside through. Because I lower body drive is what creates the upper body rotation. So if you're restricted in the lower body, it's gonna affect how much speed you're gonna be able to generate with the bat head.
0: When you're talking about um, a little bit ago about creating power and how everyone's fascinated with always getting bigger and bulking up, and that's kind of that's going to equate to more power. Um, how do you teach your guys or coach your guys to develop more power?
1: Yeah, so I'm I'm big on um, I, I'm one of the, I'm an Olympic lifting guy. Um, I believe that's a part of needs to be a part of a of a. Um, of a strength program or a power program or, or developing player and even for a player, um, you know, at, at a higher level. Now, again, we're not, um, you know, I'm big on clean pulls. I'm big on push presses. I'm big on snatches, things like that. And most people say, well, but doesn't that put the, the arm and the shoulder at risk? And the key is when you teach Olympic lifting, the arms are just along for the ride. They're not really doing any work. So when we do a clean pull, the reason we're doing a clean pull and not an actual clean is because I don't want them to catch the bar and potentially injure their wrist or their shoulder. I'm just concerned with them producing power through the ground and being able to move that weight at a high velocity. So I incorporate that heavily into my programs, but my program base breaks down to where literally probably 30% to 40% of the program is actually, you know, um, moving resistance. You know, I, I, we're doing a lot of, like I said, corrective type work to make sure we have adequate range of motion of the hips and shoulders. Uh, we're making sure that we're, you know, we're foam rolling to make sure our tissue is strong. We're do, using other modalities to keep the tissue relaxed and get rid of tension. Um, active range of motion. Uh, and then we're focusing obviously on keeping the core, shoulder, and hips strong. And then we go into our lift and then we go into our recovery. And before, you know, I, I should say we condition Before, um, you know, once we finish our foam rolling phase, that's when I do our conditioning. So we always condition before our weight training uh, to make sure um, that the body is is warm and it's hot and ready to go. So it's my program breaks down into multiple phases, um, but we check those boxes every time we train. So everything compounds over time. And I I just worked with a a player last year. He's, He's now playing at Boston College. And this guy, we started training together at the end of his 10th grade year, his sophomore year, and he had n- almost no weight training experience. By the end of his, when he was getting ready to go to college this past summer, I mean, he was clean pulling over 400 pounds on a bar for speed with good form and on top of it. So he made gains very quickly because we built a really strong foundation. And um, that's tedious work. It's boring. It's, it's not glamorous, but... So um, you said you you
0: have your guys conditioned before they left. Yeah, always. So, so okay, so um, what do you how do you how do they how do you have them get ready to condition?
1: So like I said, our, our they will start their um, process of they, that's where they'll do all their they'll come in right away. They do their manual table stretching and anything they need there, and then from there they go into their foam rolling. Uh, and then from there, they'll go into some movement dynamics, you know, dynamic type warm-up. And then we get them going from there. Um, we get them right into their conditioning program. And, and, again, my conditioning is always 10 minutes or less, never exceeding 10 minutes. Yeah. Really? Yeah. I, I should preface that. Early, you know, when we're first starting to, to get the body going again, like, let's say, this time of year, we may go up to 15 to 15 and 17 minutes. But it's never long durational type stuff that's, um, that, uh, you know, taxing or, or draining in that way. So I know it's, a, it's an atypical approach, but I found it to work really well because, uh, again, I'm not looking for a result today. I'm looking at the next three months and I'm saying, hey, if I work today, tomorrow, the next day, the next day, I'm just putting money in the bank every day. So it's what we do over a three to six month period. Not so much what we try to pack everything into today. So our training sessions, they never exceed an hour either. So it's like I said, much like we started the conversation, very structured. There's no wasted time, complete structure. We start and we end. And it's and it's fully calculated in that way.
0: Um let's um, let's talk a little bit about different types of stretching. I know the other day on Instagram I put something up um about making sure because a lot of times you know being a high school coach i i see so many people you know just do the typical they're in a circle they do a couple you know stretches touch their toes and then start playing right away
1: yep so i'll I'll take that um and i i'm 100 percent with you on that i think that's a complete waste of time uh the way it's traditionally done and you know for me my warm-ups you know the players In spring training, they, they can't stand me. I even did a, I just did a clinic a few weeks ago with Cal and Billy in, in Maryland. We had some of the top infielders on the East Coast there. And I took them through literally a 35 minute warm up that was about movement and it was about, um, you know, conditioning within the warm up. And then I build the arm program into the warm up, which is all active. And then, but what I do also do, is I actually, believe it or not, we heat them up, then we circle them up, and we do a lot of... um, uh, It's a mix of static and dynamic together, going back and forth. Because what I found is, if I just dynamically stretch, I don't put the muscle under enough tension for it to actually say, neurologically, okay, I'm safe to release now. So I found that so many players today have hip flexor issues because they're sitting so much. So I would measure literally all these guys that have hip flexor issues. They'd have anterior pelvic tilt. Um, they'd have a lot of structural, you know, conditions that would I- exist because of, you know, flexibility and, like I said, uh, mobility limitation. So what I do is I take them through this warm-up. I heat their body up. They're they're, own, they're they're really work. And then we circle them up, and I go through this mix of of in-place type dynamic and static. Dynamic static. So I'm increasing the muscle length and then I'm using dynamics to actually hold the length. So I'm going back and forth. And I found again that to be really work really well as a, as a practical strategy to not dumping static stretching. Cause that's when we go online and we read, you know, there's these camps that say, okay, no more, dy- you know, dynamic only, no static or no distance running for baseball players, only interval based work and sprints. And that sort of, um, black and white mentality, it's not true. And I'm telling you, I've, I've experienced it practically. You know, when you don't run players enough and build enough of a dynamic, uh, an aerobic base underneath them, you're risk, you're going to create risk when you try to anaerobically train them, uh, and over, and, you know, through sprinting and things like that if it's too early. So, but I believe in both. I, I believe in both. And I, I think, um, it's important that we're very open-minded as to saying, hey, it's not just, you know, science says this. And therefore, this is all we do. Because science, we can get science to say whatever we want. Like I said, I have a degree in sports medicine, heavily science-based. And a lot of the things that I learned do not apply. It's like the functional movement screen, right? If you get a 21 on the functional movement screen, your player won't get hurt, according to Gray Cook and, and Lee Burton who created it. And I don't know if you guys are familiar with that, but um, the reality is it's not true. I had players with high scores on the movement screen that that got hurt, and they and they they were not immune to injury because of that. And and that test was not foolproof. Um, well, I, th- I think there's a, there's told. a
0: lot of reasons why why players get hurt. I mean, I don't think one screen can possibly you know. To, you know be you know it's like similar saying to like you know guys who throw hard will get tommy john well my buddy brent Suter, who averaged i think the slowest miles per hour fastball in all of major league baseball this year 86 miles an hour he got tommy john this year so i mean there's there's no there, there's no real i don't think there's a real there's signs of guys who could potentially be injury prone or not maybe but there's no there's no way to to actually really determine
1: yeah, like we would class we had a we had a system based on our evaluation and assessment where we would classify players as as uh low risk, moderate risk and high risk. And I got to tell you, our high risk guys, they typically they typically blew up, you know, every year. It was just a matter of when, how deep into the season because we got our system so tight that we were able to identify risk but yeah there's a lot of there's a lot of contributing factors, and that's why I say like there is no one size fits all method there is no one size fits all screen. It's just a matter of you know um you gotta have the athletes know their bodies and and also too it's also players knowing when to say, "Hey, you know what, like I feel like doo-doo today, and I'm not like i something's off today, and I think teaching players to have the confidence to to speak up at times and Again, I'm not an advocate of, of soft, you know, culture by any means. But I see a lot of times people trying to play through things that that there's risk there and that ends up being why they get hurt. So um you know, I know a little a little off topic but but uh you know, screening is, is an important part of what we do and, and in terms of the stretching, using both methods, um, I find to be uh effective.
0: Yeah, I mean I, I like using both methods as well. Um I mean, static stretching feels extremely good. And I've also seen that it can, you know, it can, it can tend to relax players and it can tend to have, a, you know, release that high tension, high stress release, which in fact could, you know, make them maybe not as have as much power output.
1: Yeah. And, and you know, I, I want to think of, talk about this, though, one more thing. You know, like I'm sure, you, you know, Raul Abanez is a, is a player um, that, you know, had a long career in the big leagues. And his routine before every game was he literally lay in the back of the weight room on the ground and relax for about 15 20 minutes mm-hmm. he'd get up he'd do some high knees do some sprints in the outfield and and he'd go and um, there's there's here's where the, the the scientific and the practical kind of you know they they don't they're not they don't they don't gel together in that some players, are already high octane guys you know they're already amped players and if they go into a game amped it it actually works out to be a negative Mm -hmm. so they need to do things to actually calm them down because you know neurologically they're already amped up so for that player you know do we try to amp them up even more or do we bring them back down you know and and I found that that's where the again knowing your players and 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 creating it an individualized plan based on each player, you know, really helps. and that's why, um, like I said, the the absolutes for me, I don't I don't subscribe to because I've seen things that are that are absolutely taboo that I've done work, and I've seen things that are absolutely supported, not work, you know. So I I I think it's very player specific. So keep all the tools in your box and know when to use each tool. Um, but even to date, I still see people doing. You know, again, you go online, you see exercises being posted and and people teaching and coaching others on how to properly train, and they're still missing the fundamentals, you know? Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, Just even when I was starting out, I used to spend a lot of time when I would uh, consult with teams. This was when foam rolling first came out, teaching how to actually foam roll. And the reality is, Foam rolling is meant to inhibit tissue. It's meant to relax the tissue and relax the body enough to where it can almost say, ah, and then that trigger point relaxes. You can't roll over a trigger point and release a trigger point. The only way you can release a trigger point is with direct pressure, 15, 30, 45, 60 seconds plus. So when we teach foam rolling, it's not about the rolling. It's about rolling to find the next point, sit on it until it dissipates then roll again. So a, tr- a true foam rolling session early for someone that's never done it, that has, you know, adhesions and knots all over their body, it could take 30, 35 minutes. And that would be insane to tell someone, hey, you've got to spend 35, 40 minutes on a roller. They'll look at you like you have six heads. But but that's actually how you're supposed to roll. You're supposed to actually not roll. You're supposed to roll till you find a spot, sit on it, let it dissipate and then maybe move an eighth of an inch till you find the next spot.
0: So you're so, saying you, you need to roll until you find something that, that doesn't feel good and then just stick on that for a while?
1: And and stick on it. That's the only reason you're rolling. Um, you can actually roll after you find all those spots and release them. You could then roll for some blood flow, but the true intent and the reason a foam roller was actually developed was for what they call myofascial release, and you can't re. re- Release the fascia of the body unless you go direct pressure. It's impossible. So I see, you know, there's, there's, you gotta be really careful. Um, and I, I talk to my athletes about this a lot. Be careful about what you're subscribing to because listen, there's great salesmanship everywhere we go today and, and things, they, they suck me in. And I start questioning, I'm like, man, is that legit? And then you, again, you go back to your principles and, and you go back to the practical. Um, and, and, you know, that's, uh, that's, that's always what I do. So
0: Dana, really appreciate you coming on today. Um, fantastic stuff. And again, man, really appreciate you. You're a great guest.
1: Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. Definitely.